campsite media. Hello, can you hear me? Right, okay. Hello? Hello? So, what do you want me to say? And just, um... Hello? Chameleon. Season 4. Scam Likely. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> Following the money had gotten Chris, Dave, and Dylan, the guys who gave a shit, a long way in their investigation. It had allowed them to see how the cash a victim in the U.S. loaded onto a prepaid debit card kept moving farther and farther away until it could be easily pocketed by the scammers in India. It had tipped them off to the existence of the runners who laundered the money and evaded law enforcement by driving all over the U.S., but there was a key part of the scheme that the investigators didn't fully grasp, and that was the stolen identities used to move the money. These identities belonged to people who had nothing to do with the scam. But Chris, Dave, and Dylan couldn't quite figure it out. Where did those stolen identities come from? Dylan, the digital data ace, would look at the information over and over. So we happen to notice that a lot of those stolen identities were a bunch of nurses in New York. It's odd that so many of them in this batch were all nurses. It was very odd. So another federal agent working the case starts digging, and he notices that it's not just that those stolen identities are a bunch of nurses from New York. They're all affiliated with the same company. So the agent calls up the company and tells them they've got a problem. I did not want to believe that something like that would happen to us. Uh, it was something that, you know, I, I, could, I could really, I, I did not imagine. This is the CEO of that company. I'm going to call him Leonardo. The company he runs helps individuals in need of home health care find nurses and does a lot of payroll-type work for the nurses too, which involves keeping their personal data, things like social security numbers. Making sure that information stays safe is one of his company's most important responsibilities. So this news, that someone has stolen it, seems like an existential risk to Leonardo. When I realized that we had a problem, uh, I would say it was not a pleasant moment. You know, something like that can basically kill a company. The federal agent tells Leonardo he doesn't know how the identities of these particular nurses were stolen. That was a mystery that following the money alone couldn't solve. And Leonardo decides it's his company, his responsibility, and he's going to try to get to the bottom of it himself. You know, it's funny because in such a moment, you really have two options, right? You can decide either to go and hide and, and try not to, you know, dig too much information and leave it to that. Or you can, what I believe is the right thing to do is to really dig into the problem and understand the scope of the issue that you have on hand. Leonardo knew that nurses routinely call into his company to ask for and share their personal information. And he also knew those calls were handled by a call center in India. And what Leonardo finds out is that there's one particular employee at that call center who has fielded the calls of these nurses whose identities have been stolen. But it's still a puzzle to Leonardo. How could this employee have stolen all the information? It was mind-boggling how that person found a way to get that information. I mean, yes, if it's, you know, one person, maybe you can remember the numbers, but if you have multiple people, multiple um, customer data, I mean, how do you keep that information? 
Leonardo knows his call center has CCTV cameras, so he goes through the footage and he finds out exactly what's going on. When the employee is on the phone with the nurses, he can see their personal information on his computer screen. At some point during the conversations, he whips out his cell phone and snaps a photo. Leonardo cannot believe it. I took it pretty personal. I was also pretty pissed. <laughs> right away, he books a one-way ticket to India, tells his wife he's not sure when he's going to be back. With an Indian private investigator he's hired, Leonardo marches into the call center and pulls the employee aside. At the beginning, he denied everything, but because we had the CCTV, we had the access log, the investigator, who was really, really professional, basically confronted him and basically told him that if he's not admitting what he did and give us actually all his accomplices, he will basically um, go after him and most likely he was going to end up in jail and I guess jail in India is not something that he wanted to end up in. So at a certain point during the interview, the employee basically opened up and started basically giving us actually all the information. And Leonardo passes on that information directly to the investigators. Here's Dave. His employee apparently broke like a cheap shotgun and told him that uh, I've been selling customer or employees PII to the call centers. This is how I communicate with them. So he came and brought back to us um, the email addresses that he had been sending those names, addresses, dates for socials, back to his handler. It was good timing because Dave, Dylan, Chris, and their colleagues were already busy working their way into the heart of the call center scam themselves. And when you combine that with the information Leonardo had gotten from his employee... It sort of put that overall umbrella with the tendrils down to the various crews and said all of these call centers are working in concert with one another. And now it essentially was able to put your fingers out there and touch all of them. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cam Likely, the fourth season of Chameleon. I'm Yudijit Bhattacharjee. Episode 4, Find the Evidence. Taking down an organized crime network is a lot more difficult than going after a lone thief or murderer. Mafia families that run extortion rackets or drug cartels that ply the narcotics trade set up systems to protect their businesses from law enforcement. The masterminds sitting at the top don't get their hands dirty. Criminal acts that can be easily traced are carried out by minions at the lowest rungs of the hierarchy. If those minions get caught, it doesn't bother the ringleaders because they always have plausible deniability. And so, in August of 2014, a year and a half after the start of the investigation, the investigators decided it was time to move one rung up the ladder. That meant getting to Mitesh Patel, the boss of many of the runners Chris, Dave, and Dylan had tracked around the country. Mitesh, you might remember from episode two, is the guy who called all the runners back to Chicago 
to instill some discipline in them and review their performance. What they had to do was find out what Mitesh knew without him becoming aware of it. They knew exactly how to do it. We have border search authority, um, so we're allowed to search pretty much anything that comes into or out of the U.S. Dave and his colleagues knew Mitesh traveled back and forth to India often. The next time he left the United States, they asked immigration authorities to stop him at customs for a routine search when he re-entered the country. They took his phone and eventually downloaded all the data. There was actually a chat on there where he was like, I'm at the hotel right now, um, it's room such and such, and he, he was clearly picking up a bag of money. He was talking about a token. That's really common, we see that a lot. You've probably seen that on TV where you'll have two people that have a half of a dollar bill. Now they may just have it digitally on their phone, but at the time, you know, you show me your half and I'll show you mine, they match, and we know that we're supposed to be in the same room together. The most interesting thing the agents found was a FedEx shipping label. It was for an envelope full of cash that Mitesh had sent to a guy down in Sugarland, Texas, Sonny Joshi. When they pulled up Sonny's driver's license and photo, they recognized his face right away. They had seen him in CCTV grabs from stores in the Houston area. He was a prolific runner, but they'd never been able to figure out his name. Now, thanks to the shipping label, they knew just who he was. Chris, who was based in Houston, started following him. I would sit down the street and his house sat on the end of a street so I could sit down the street and I would watch and he would come out and he would smoke in his garage. I'd see the garage door opening as I was sitting, you know, my, my car parked down the street and he didn't want to come out in the rain so he'd open the garage door and stand there and smoke. Sonny Joshi is a striking figure. He weighs nearly 400 pounds and wears glasses. One day, not long after Chris started surveilling him, he traveled to India. Just like with Mitesh, the agents had him searched when he flew back to the U.S. But unlike Mitesh Patel, Sonny Joshi had taken some precautions. When he came back into the country, he had wiped his phone. He probably was aware or at least concerned that he might get searched. Still, Sonny hadn't covered his tracks perfectly, which got Dave excited. His phone was almost sterile. He has contacts that had re-uploaded, but there was just this one email. And it, it very easily could have just been that when he turned his phone back on, he hit a cell tower that it just, bing, he had one email on there, and that was it. That one email had an attachment, an Excel spreadsheet listing dozens of transactions to move the money of victims. Based on that one email, that one dirty email, we were able to get a search warrant for Sonny's account. And those search warrants allowed us to see the beginning of a massive conspiracy in India. The agents had hoped that Sonny's phone would lead them to one or two key individuals sitting at the top of the criminal organization that he worked for. What they got instead was a lot messier, but also more encouraging. We open up that email account and we see umpteen thousand emails. And so now I'm going through email by email and seeing if anything in there is um, evidence of a crime. And who is that person that he's communicating with in that account where there's evidence of a crime? And you set those aside and you tag them. And then you write your next search warrant for 15 more email accounts that they communicated with about the conspiracy. 
And so then what were the email accounts that you were able to get into? Eventually about 45 or 46 more email accounts and about 4 million emails because of that one. Some of the emails were pretty run-of-the-mill stuff you'd see at any legitimate company. Communication with the tech people that they were using to outfit the office, communication with the people they were leasing from, anything that you would think of that's in a standard email account associated with any legitimate business would be in these email accounts. And then there was the good stuff. Emails that laid out the core elements of the scamming operation. You're seeing communication of things like scripts, communication of things like telephone numbers, the lead lists, the list of people that they were going to call or had called in the U.S., communication about how much money they were making, all of it. In other words, the agents had hit the mother load. This was exactly what they'd been hoping to find, evidence that could advance the case and help convince a jury that the business was a massive criminal conspiracy to steal from Americans. These emails were the smoking gun. There was no doubt about what was going on. The scammers were even pumping each other up to take their game to the next level. I had Dylan read an email to me. Hi there. Today is the last Friday of the month. Please, please process as max as you can. Make your customers run for MP. MP stands for money pack. Tell them it's now or never for the loan. Right, this was when they were doing some of the fake loans. Tell them the cops are on the way to arrest you. Get effing money pack right now. Let's make huge money and make huge cash. Thank you for your time. But maybe the most important thing the investigators learned from the emails was how big and well-coordinated the whole thing was. The scammers had corporatized their crime, optimizing their processes, so that they could prey on targets on a huge scale. The agents had suspected there were multiple call centers behind the scam, but they had assumed that the call centers were different businesses, not connected to one another. You know, when you first start, you're like, well, this is his call center, and this is his call center, and this is his call center. Dave thought they must be rivals. But when they start looking at emails, they would start seeing overlaps. When they were reviewing the emails, they would see this call center was communicating with this call center. This person over here was sending debit card numbers that were active in the field to them. If one call center snared a particularly lucrative victim, they might not have enough runners in their network ready to move all of that money right then. So they would reach out to their competitor and say, hey, who do you got in the field? And they go, oh, we're good. I got two, three hundred of them that are alive right now. And they would sort of share that victim. These call centers had figured out it was more beneficial to work together than to be rivals. There was apparently no shortage of gullible Americans to take advantage of. But this didn't seem to be just about profit. Dylan remembers one email written by one of the higher-ups in the scam. It got to him. It said, at a certain point, money is meaningless. Really? It ceases to be the goal. The game is what counts. That sort of encapsulates what we saw a lot of. At some point, a lot of these guys had plenty of money, and it, it really was, it didn't even seem about the money anymore. It really was a sport. Yeah. And it was kind of a sickening part of all of it, too, because they were not thinking about all the people who were victimized as a part of this. To the agents, all of these emails 
and the emails they had gotten through Leonardo at the nurse staffing company, and all the other evidence they had collected by following the money and chasing the runners, it seemed like enough to nail the entire scamming operation. But when Dylan and his colleagues went to try to get a prosecutor interested, they realized it was going to be an uphill battle. You're not, you're not doing all of this for fun. And so I remember sitting in these meetings where we showed charts and charts of, well, there's $10 million of victim loss in your area. But there were many U.S. attorney's offices who were not compelled to prosecute the case for various reasons. And I, I can remember a few phone conversations where Dave was really upset. And um, it just... They um, did not want to prosecute the case, and, and you know, Dave was fighting mad. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We'll go somewhere else if you don't want the case. You know, it makes us mad, but we're, we're going to go somewhere where it's going to be prosecuted. Yeah, this is a little bit like, you know, a journalist with a story. Right. It happens right. to us all the time where we have a pitch. We know it's a great story, but... Yeah. Editor after editor says, mm, it's not big enough, yeah. it's not clear enough, well, you don't have all the goods. It's, yes. It's one of the things with federal investigations, sometimes if they get too big, they get unwieldy like this. And, you know, it really, really can, can spook people. More after the break. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Which prosecutor was going to take the case Dave, Dylan, and Chris had built? Was anyone? For a while, it was an open question. Then, the guys who gave a shit crossed paths with just the right person in just the right position to run with it. I'm Hope Olds. I'm currently the acting chief of the Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section within the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice. Hope Olds is a career prosecutor. She has a quiet, resolute air about her, exuding strength while being polite. She served in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and did a stint as an assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey before starting her current job. Hope had already worked on several international cases, just the kind of lawyer who would understand what the investigators were trying to do. So when she heard about it in 2014, she sat down with the agents to learn more. 
the crime that was being outlined to me was abhorrent, but quite frankly, the first thing I thought was these were fabulous agents. Like the, the agents that I met with, had they not been as articulate, as clearly hardworking and diligent, I would not have taken it or been interested. This case needed to be brought in a, in a broad way and without really talented agents, it would never have been brought at all. By that, Hope meant casting a wide net to go after the entire conspiracy, not going after just a couple of criminals at one place doing one thing, not playing whack-a-mole. In the meeting, Dave had taken the lead. He was the one that really opened this conversation up and laid out what they knew at the time. And of course, what they knew at the time was still just, you know, paper thin compared to what we ended up getting to. But he was able to tell this story about the victimization, the potential number of people out there that had been victimized, and the potential number of perpetrators. He's a quite compelling storyteller. He also remembers a lot of odd facts that helps to tell those stories. Hope had the ability to make things happen for the agents. Since she was at Maine Justice, meaning DOJ headquarters in Washington, D.C., she could get U.S. attorneys from different parts of the country to work together on the case. She also brought in another prosecutor from Maine Justice, a guy named Mike Shekels. I'm going to be yeah. your buttoned-up DOJ suit. Mike's underselling himself here, which is typical. He's a humble guy, but he was the one who really helped break down the walls for me to interview Dave, Chris, and Dylan. He helped me understand the case from a big-picture perspective, including why he realized immediately that it was going to be really tough to prosecute. It's one of the reasons it took many years, because the scammers are good at their job. They design their scams and schemes in such a way that, you know, it sort of makes it difficult. But when Mike and Hope rolled up their sleeves and dug into everything Dave, Chris, and Dylan had put together, they smelled blood. What made you think that this case was prosecutable? You know, like, what were you going to need in terms of evidence to really make this work? Well, the thing that made it work was were the emails. I mean, that's the thing that got us into the case and helped us realize the scope of the crime and helped us identify who the perpetrators were. So I think without the emails, we would have, uh, would we have even been able to go after anyone? Mike's thought when he started to read those emails was, I want to get these guys. They were very uh, sort of enthused that they were taking advantage of people in this way and ripping people off. And when, when I think agents or prosecutors would see the glee that they took of victimizing U.S. people, it's sort of like, well, this is a good reason why this, we're spending all our time on this case, because we do need to hold them accountable. The impunity of the scammers was awe-inspiring. And there was like Facebook posts that I think were publicly available that would show fancy cars and elaborate get-togethers and, you know, what the call center would look like that they were operating in. And so there was a certain aspect of they were not shy about touting what they were doing because I think probably for good reasons they figured, you know, there would never be any ability. It's, it was too complicated and too hard and which prosecutors and investigators would spend the time to figure it out, and would the U.S. really come after people, you know, all the way in India. So those are motivators for sure. 
Mike and Hope could anticipate the arguments that the scammers would make to defend themselves. Everyone could claim plausible deniability, say they were just following orders, that they had no idea that this was a scam. For instance, the callers could try to say, hey, we thought we were working for the IRS or immigration services. Plenty of perfectly legitimate call centers in India do work for U.S. organizations. We just thought this was another one. But Mike and Hope had a way to blow up those claims. What was, in your view, the strongest evidence that you could use if the case went to trial? The script that you've seen is probably one of our strongest pieces of evidence because it so blatantly showed their intent to defraud. Even in some of the scripts, it talked about the person they called being the customer or the client, and then themselves, the caller, being the closer, and kept talking, you know, literally a script for the closer and the customer. So the idea being, like, you're not going to stop until you actually have money in your hand. Uh, so I think that that was probably one of the strongest and would speak to any jury. What I found remarkable about these scripts were the subtle tricks used in them to come across as genuine. Like the scam caller rattling off his badge ID number at the beginning of the call and asking the victim to scribble down the case number. It was infuriating to see. And, and one of the things, too, is there's sort of a progression in the level of sophistication with a script from early in the scheme to, you know, years later, where they're learning from what works and what doesn't. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, it, was, it made people, frankly, pissed off. That's a legal term. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're listening to Scam Likely. More after this. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. One of the biggest questions in a long and sprawling investigation with multiple threads like this one is when to go in for the kill. By late 2014, the case had been dubbed Operation Outsource. In addition to Dave, Chris, and Dylan, there were agents from the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, the U.S. Secret Service, various state and city police department officials, all lending support to the case. Hope could see that every new tidbit of information dug up by the investigation was helping to fill out the picture. But at some point, you have to finish the investigation. We could probably still be investigating right now. But if we wanted to 
prevent further victimization. We needed to do something and take what we had and actually move forward with it. But when? I will say there were, there were a couple of moments where we could have gone in different directions. One of those moments was when a suspect in the case traveled from India to the United States and was picked up by police in California on charges of using fake IDs. Dylan, Chris, and Dave believed this person could be an important player in the scam. Realizing they might not have another opportunity to arrest someone this high up from India, the agents were eager to take him into federal custody. There was one of our Indian targets who was in the United States, and it was earlier in the investigation, and he, had, he came to light. There must have been a financial transaction that had occurred, and the agents really wanted to arrest him. But the amount of evidence we had on him was, was fairly small at that point, and it would have alerted the rest of the network to the fact that we were on to what was happening here, onto this scheme, and I didn't want to risk that. And so that was not a that was not a moment that we agreed, and I told them they were not to arrest that individual, and he returned to India, and we still don't have him. In retrospect, Hope isn't so sure that was the right call. Maybe that was the right moment, or maybe that wasn't the right moment. If we, they had arrested him and he had cooperated, then that would have broken open the case in a different way. But if he hadn't, and he had been immediately released, and then everyone knew to change their phones and their emails, or we would not have gotten the rest of the network. Hope's a good lawyer, so she tends to be careful when she talks. But I knew who the suspect was that she was talking about. I think you're probably referring to Rajpal Shah. Um, One C? Is that, is that? See, see, how, see how up on the details he is? <laughs> He's a little too up on the details. I can neither confirm nor deny who you're referring to. But even though Hope and Mike believed Rajpal Shah was an important figure in the scam, he wasn't at the top of the pyramid. From the emails the investigators had been studying, they had begun to glean the organizational structure of the call centers in India. As they gained more insight into who the masterminds were, two names emerged at the top. The first was Sagar Tucker, known to his friends and associates as Shaggy. Shaggy was, the investigators believed, the phenom of the scam. Although he was still in his early 20s, he had achieved cult status in the industry. He was the guy with bodyguards who looked rich, who was running the call center where Pawan and Jayesh worked the young guys we met in Mumbai in episode three. He had started from the bottom, working as a caller just like Pawan and Jayesh. Chris was studying Shaggy from afar, and even he was impressed. He rose quickly through the ranks and became a very sought-after dialer, a sought-after closer, a sought-after payment processor. He was able to develop networks of runners in the U.S. very easily because of his English language skills and ultimately managed a number of crews in the U.S. who liquidated assets on behalf of the call centers. We believe he, by the time we were ready to indict, we were wrapping up the investigation and, and, and getting ready to indict, we believe that he had stepped into a role in, on his own, running his own call centers. Shaggy's facility with the English language was only part of the reason for his rise. A bigger reason was his knack for strategizing and his talent for innovation. 
Chris had seen evidence that Shaggy had gotten the runners to experiment with different gift cards to make the money trail harder to follow. It seemed that Shaggy also kept changing how phone calls were made, trying out different software to route the calls over the internet. By the time the agents would figure out what was going on, Shaggy would already be two steps ahead. He was also a charismatic personality, a born showman. Dave was just showing me a picture of the Audi that, that Shaggy bought from the captain of the Indian cricket team. It was like one of like 10 in the world or something like that, this Audi A4. Yeah, he was, he was a high roller. He was, he was living flashy. He had a, a lot of money. I couldn't tell you the, the amount or, or, the, or how that would translate, but he was, he was doing quite well, well enough to be opening up call centers and you know buying expensive supercars from probably the most popular athlete in India. Chris and the other investigators believed that Shaggy was on his way to becoming the kingpin of the industry, but he wasn't there yet. He appeared to be working on plans to open up his own call centers. But in the meantime, he was a contractor for an influential call center that had been one of the pioneers of the business. He came out of the H Global Network. He was affiliated with them most strongly. He appears to have been operating independently, but uh, certainly had strong connections to uh, H Global. H Global was the center of the scam. The agents believed it had more callers and runners working directly for it than any of the other call center networks they had seen. And Hitesh Patel, was he affiliated to a different call center? Hitesh Patel was the head of H Global. H Global. That's why H, probably. H for Hitesh. Yeah. Hitesh Patel. The other big name the investigators had come up with. For Chris, Dave, and Dylan, Hitesh was even bigger than Shaggy. He was target number one. If I was going to call somebody the, you know, the head of the cartel, the kingpin, the El Chapo of, you know, IRS scamming, it would be Hitesh. Like El Chapo, Hitesh came from a modest background. He wasn't conversant in English. He had a quiet, understated style. He leaned on people like Shaggy for technological and business expertise, but he could provide what others couldn't. Here's Dylan. He didn't get involved in the exact logistics, day-to-day -day operational things, but he definitely, um, in Gujarat, liquor is illegal, right? And Hitesh could provide liquor to anyone and everyone. So that was one of the things he did to grease the skids. He knew all the right people. He knew how power worked. He was a people person. He had um, a used car lot, and that used car lot doubled as an after-hours party spot. Uh, he would put on elaborate dinners and entertain uh, public officials and police. Ever since Hope and Mike had started supervising the case, the investigators had been compiling more and more evidence. It was painstaking work an endless chain of email subpoenas, combing through hundreds of thousands of emails, slow-going and tedious investigative steps. Finally, after two years, by the middle of 2016, a lot of the evidence was in place. The question was, who to indict? Hitesh, Shaggy, Sonny Joshi, Mitesh Patel. These were the obvious targets, but there were a lot of others and the prosecutors knew it would dilute the case to go after every single person caught in the net. We had numerous meetings with 
the entire team and going through each of our potential targets. And there were many more targets than 61 when we started. And essentially, all of us had to discuss what evidence we had against each person. And if they didn't hit a certain threshold, they were, you know, they were on the cutting room floor. And some people to this day wish that certain ones had been included in the indictment. Hope was leading the team that was drafting the indictment. Together with Mike Shekels at DOJ and with the help of two assistant U.S. attorneys in Houston, she worked to make sure every I was dotted and every T crossed. We painstakingly went through each defendant and which items we wanted to include in the indictment, as well as how to talk about the broad scope of the conspiracy and the network and the scheme. They were close to the finish line. We presented it to the grand jury, grand jury indicted, and it was just a matter of scheduling then our takedown. But it turned out Hope and the agents weren't the only ones gearing up to take down the scam call center network. You can imagine arresting 700 people at the same time. We had to keep them with us, right? Where would you keep 700 people? And you just don't have to keep them. You have to feed them, right? (laughs) That's next time on Scam Likely. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes now. Or listen weekly on Amazon Music. And you can even listen on your Amazon Alexa simply by saying, Alexa, play Chameleon Scam Likely on Amazon Music. Chameleon is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Scam Likely was produced and written by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, and me, Udigit Patacharji. Callie Hitchcock and Yiwin Lai Tremuin were our associate producers. The show was fact-checked by Sarah Ivry. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional music by Samba Jean-Baptiste. Special thanks to Campside's operations team, Aliyah Papes and Doug Slavin. The executive producers at Campside are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff.